following program contains outdated racial epithets and stereotypes that will make most black people giggle at their archness and may make white people get super uptight and vote for a clown whose incompetence and corruption will threaten to destroy the entire United States of America. Plus, I try to imitate Phil Lamar's John Stewart voice, which should be deeply offensive to everyone. Peckerwood discretion is advised. Absolutely without fear, the Emerald Crusader, Hal Jordan, was given the magnificent Ring of Power. Green Lantern serves the Guardians of the Universe as one of the famed Green Lantern Corps, fighting evil in all its forms. From the 1985 edition of the comic book heroes from the Silver Age to the present, Will Jacobs and Gerard Jones write, When the Flash won his own magazine in 1959, Julius Schwartz began to get his first inkling that the world might be ready for costumed heroes again. But was this really the reopening of a field that most comic book professionals had dismissed as gone forever? Or was the Scarlet Speedster's success only a fluke? Five times in the next two years, Schwartz would try to answer that question, each time with a modernization of a comic from the Golden Age. First to his Green Lantern, in a version of parting much further from his inspiration than had the Flash. He shared with the Golden Age Green Lantern the concept of a normal man armed with a ring capable of performing miracles. In both the old and new versions, the ring was driven by the wearer's own willpower and energized by a sort of green railroad lantern. But the old Green Lantern was a semi-mystical character with an ancient magic lantern. The Green Lantern of 1959 drew his powers from a lantern-shaped power battery entrusted to him by a dying crime fighter from another world, as seen in Showcase Number 22, covered in October 1959. This cosmic Green Lantern, with his near-omnipotent power ring, would become Schwartz's mighty hero, his answer to Superman. The very nature of his power would draw him to Far planets, the future, and parallel dimensions, leaving the world of Flash and his rogues far behind. John Broom was able to draw from a new realm of his imagination in inventing stories for Green Lantern. Forgoing his lighthearted Flash style, he dipped into the mysteries of science, space, and time to create menaces that would stretch and challenge the powers of his hero. In Green Lantern's second appearance in Showcase, for example, the repressed, destructive side of a scientist's imagination springs to independent life as a faceless man, wrecking destruction with atomic weapons until Green Lantern can exercise and destroy it. When Green Lantern began his own magazine in the late spring of 1960, he, and the readers along with him, knew little of his origin and purpose, or the true scope of his powers. Answering the question, surrounding his unique hero in the first nine issues of Green Lantern, Broom plotted what remains one of the most impressive multi-issue sequences in the history of comics. It begins in issue one, when Green Lantern's psyche is swept bodiless to the distant planet Oa. There we learn that he is only one of a core of Green Lanterns, each from a different planet, commanded by a race of telepaths called the Guardians of the Universe. This was an idea Broom drew directly from his earlier science fiction experience, specifically a story in the Captain Comet series he did for Schwartz in the early 1950s, in which Comet is sworn into service to the Cosmic Guardians. In issues two, three, and four, covered in October 1950, through February 1961, the Emerald Gladiator tangles with the weaponers of the Dimension Quarg, where crime is a social norm and those who are unlawfully honest are punished. In issue 6, Green Lantern is summoned by a fellow Green Lantern, a thin-headed, bird-beaked gentleman named Tomar Ray, to a planet of living phantoms. Issue 7 introduces another Green Lantern, the renegade Sinestro, who would become the archfoe of the Green Lantern of Earth. Issue 9 brings it all to a climax that can put a lump in the throat of a devoted reader. Sinestro teams up with the weaponers of Quarg to invade our dimension, and only the combined power of the Guardians of the Green Lantern Corps, replete with intelligent insects, plant beings, living crystals, and bipedal fish can defeat them. The battle won, the entire core charges its rings together on the mammoth power battery of Oa in one stunning full-page drawing. These comic spectacles were brought to life by the art of another Schwartz veteran, Gil Kane. Kane had come to the Schwartz stable in the early 1950s as a neat but undistinguished penciler, but during the next several years he had begun to work out a style of his own. His early Green Lantern drawings were notable for their compelling storytelling and muscular action, but his work generally looked rushed and undeveloped. Kane's covers, however, showed his potential. His broad, bold layouts always started with the 
point of view that would give each scene its most dramatic angle. His characters seemed to fly, leap, and stagger right off the covers into the reader's lap. Though not yet the artist Infantino was, Kane's steady improvement promised a bright future. When that future was realized in the mid-1960s, he would change the look of comic art fundamentally. Just as novel as Green Lantern's cosmic dimension was the nature of his alter ego, Hal Jordan. Jordan was no mild-mannered reporter, languid playboy, or infuriatingly slow police scientist in the classic DC mold. He was a dashing, handsome test pilot whose fearlessness had earned him his career as a costume hero. Green Lantern Hal Jordan was one of the first superheroes I ever encountered, but he had about the least presence of them all. He was a super friend, and I would catch one of the old 60s Justice League of America shorts every now and again, but it's not like he had his own cartoon like Aquaman. The earliest comic I saw Hal Jordan in was from the hard-traveling heroes days, involving a generic cult that kidnapped Green Lantern, but his ring had managed to reach Green Arrow. It was a gorgeous-looking comic, and even though Jordan was the jobber of the tale, I didn't hold it against him at the time. The first time I ever bought one of his comics was Green Lantern number 173 in late 1983, which I suspect was motivated by the cover hype beginning a startling new chapter in the life of the Emerald Crusader. It was the second issue of the Lynn Ween-Dave Gibbons run, and the first since the end of Hal Jordan's year-long exile from Earth, none of which meant anything to me as a kid, because I only remember one thing about that story. Like Superman, the Green Lantern Corpsmen had an essential vulnerability that would negate their extraordinary power. Unfortunately, in the case of the Power Ring, the vulnerability was the color yellow. And even as a child, I thought that that was all kinds of dumb. As a it makes more sense to me because I see the metaphor of yellow representing cowardice, which robs the Corpsman of his willpower. But kids don't process things as subtext. And at its heart, Green Lantern is supposed to be for kids. I thought the Javelin was a cool-looking villain, but found it monumentally stupid that one of his spears was impregnated with yellow paint that was capable of shutting down Green Lantern's power ring for a cliffhanger that left him plunging toward his death. I was curious enough to flip through the following issue on the newsstand to confirm that Green Lantern had survived Sherwin-Williams, but I didn't buy it. I don't even recall scanning any other issues until Tales of the Green Lantern Corps Annual Number 2, which looked fascinating and scary at the B. Dalton booksellers where I left it in 1986. Perhaps regretting that decision, I did buy the following year's annual at Walden Books and love the imagination and scope of creators like Alan Moore, Kevin Nolan, John Byrne, Bill Willingham, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, and more. Between the two purchases, I'd also gotten the first wave Superpowers Green Lantern action figure. It was instantly my favorite up to that point. I didn't play with Hal Jordan much, and I don't think I had him long, lost or stolen or bartered. I just remember admiring the quality of the figure in my hand. Hal was too barrel-chested and his lantern jaw too similar to Superman's, but the glorious costume design of Yo Kane rendered in three dimensions could not be denied. The simple color scheme of green, black, and white came off as so much more refined than the standard superhero fare, and a domino mask has an air of sophistication about it. Most heroes had black hair, and quite a few were blonde, but brown was a unique shade reserved for a select few, with heavy hitters Peter Parker and Bruce Banner also so graced. I think my favorite part was that drop of emerald jewelry amidst the negative space of Green Lantern's white glove that only hinted at the incredible power resting on his finger. Most everything about Green Lantern was appealing to me, and I followed him passively through random issues of the Inglehart Staten run, the Millennium Crossover, guest appearances in books like Superman, and his feature in Action Comics Weekly. Despite thinking Green Lantern was cool, none of these stories compelled me to dig deeper. And over the duration of Hal Jordan's 1990 series, I only bought a two-part Deathstroke appearance and the Reign of the Superman tie-in issue. From Gerard Jones's 1997 edition of The Comic Book Heroes, the first history of modern comic books from the Silver Age to the present. The next hero in line for trauma, announced by Paul Levitz, was Green Lantern. When the series' regular writer proved unwilling to produce an idea shocking enough, Levitz stepped in personally. He assigned Denny O'Neill, Orgy Goodwin, and Mike Carlin to plot a new direction one night. They did it. Hal Jordan goes insane, becomes a villain, and slaughters his loyal friends and his godlike bosses, every member of the Green Lantern Corps, and the Guardians of the Universe. The last dying Guardian gives his power ring to the first being he comes across, who luckily for DC's marketing department, proves to be a 
20-year-old white American male with a bay girlfriend fated to be killed so he can go savagely angry. As seen in Green Lanterns number 48 through 50, covered dated February through April 1994. Sales jumped, at least for a while. Levitz O'Neill, Goodwin, and Carlin had almost a century of commercial comics experience between them, and all but Carlin had been there since the birth of the direct market. They were proving that they were the best in the business at manipulating the collector's market and the continuity zombies, and that was what the business of comics had become. The first comic book professional I ever met was Bill Willingham, who turned up at a convention shortly after drawing a chapter of Emerald Twilight. I wasn't terribly familiar with his work at the time, so I mostly just whined to him how unfair Emerald Twilight was to Hal and his fans, despite not truly being one of them. I told him Hal Jordan didn't mean that much to me, but I thought it was wrong that fans had invested over 30 years in a hero before having him become a mass-murdering madman. If I recall correctly, Willingham was either diplomatic or simply agreed with me. So we moved on to discussing the elementals and how nice Terry Austin's inks looked over a Hunter short story he'd done in a recent showcase issue. I continued to irregularly follow Green Lantern in the late 90s because that book was always having guest stars over that I found more interesting than Hal Jordan's replacement, Kyle Rayner. I also went back and read Danny O'Neill's work in the 70s, as well as Steve Englehart's in the 80s, and came to the conclusion Hal's going nuts was actually foreseeable. Jordan was indecisive and open to suggestion, was prone to erratic behavior, made colossally stupid decisions in dramatic fashion without regard for the consequences. He did all sorts of immoral backflips to justify having a sexual relationship with a fellow Green Lantern girl who physically and psychologically was equivalent to an earthling 13-year-old, but had used her power ring to mature herself and basically was a screw-up with more power than he deserved. Fans followed the new status quo, but for a decade, DC insisted that Hal Jordan was and would always be the very evil Parallax, which I accepted. Even when Hal sacrificed his life to reignite the sun and eventually became the Spectre for a time, I was alright with it. Only when DC announced that Hal Jordan would be reborn as Green Lantern did I have reservations. There are plenty of theories as to how this could be done, my personal favorite being that evil Hal had been a clone created in a Guy Gardner story right before going nuts as Parallax, but things played out different. The real Jordan had done all that evil, only under the influence of an extraordinarily powerful alien entity. Now see, heroes get possessed by evil all the time, and Kyle Rayner specifically would be in this creature's thrall a few years later. However, like most heroes in those circumstances, Rayner had regained his autonomy after a few issues, not a dozen years following a massive body count. Even that was slowly retconned, with Coast City, Kilowog, and even Orisia, who had been killed by major force in a completely unrelated story, brought back to life in as arbitrary a fashion as possible. What they were selling, I wasn't buying. Now, just for comparison's sake, despite having no interest in the Flash mantle, an overly praised costume, and the power set, I found that I genuinely liked Barry Allen when I encountered him in his own stories and in the JLA. I even used the term the Flash Green Lantern Paradox to refer to that weird yin-yang when it comes to my interest in those two characters, and lack thereof. Despite loving the powers, look, mythos, and thousand-strong core, I learned how Jordan was a boring, flaky, temperamental schmuck. When I read those Bronze Age stories, especially the O'Neill stuff, they came across cross as too silly and self-important for an older fan, I could see the emotional and mental instability that validated how Jordan's villainous turn as Parallax. I tried to go all the way back to the John Broom stuff, but it's of a piece with all the other Silver Edge DC crud that puts me to sleep. What's worse is I like everybody around Hal Jordan. Carol Ferris is a solid female character and story motivator, while Tom Kamaku was an early, rare example of a non-white sporting character treated with respect and intelligence. Eventually. Guy Gardner is a unique and hilarious anti-hero, while Alan Scott is one of the finest examples of the classy elder statesman superhero that could have been played by Gregory Peck. I even came around to Kyle Rayner when he was played as the enthusiastic rookie of the Magnificent 7 JLA, and he provided a sense of legacy through his associations with second-generation JSA types like Jade and Obsidian, or no longer teen titans like Donna Troy. Then there was the thrilling and bizarre variety of corpsmen, from Katmatui to Kilowog to Sala to Chip, all the worlds and dimensions and factions and concepts. The entire DC Universe is 
steeped in the lore of the Guardians. Green Lantern has one of the best origin stories, an atomic age sword in the stone with a heaping helping of Lensman and other pulp mid-century science fantasy. And it was all in service to this plain white bread dude who cast off his ring and responsibilities at the slightest provocation while hanging out with the one dill hole even more insufferable than him, Oliver Queen. And don't even get me started on Jon Stewart. Even after his big budget motion picture failed spectacularly and his short-lived cartoons sputtered away, DC still wants us to buy the reborn Hal Jordan or the half-assed side lanterns created by his biggest corporate champion, Jeff Johns, while Jon Stewart gets shooed off to the side somewhere, told to count his blessings that he wasn't killed off like they'd not so secretly planned a few years ago. I look at Hal Jordan and I see the false narrative of how great America was in the year of his birth. I see the reds on the run, the star sapphires consigned to the boudoir, and the other colors in their proper place. Hal's part of the myth that if you work hard and conform for the machine, your well-earned pension would afford you a comfortable early retirement and a split-level home behind a picket fence even wider than your skin and teeth. Hal Jordan is the hero of 2800 Second Chances, whose hands were never so bloody that he couldn't wear ivory gloves over them, who is always judged superior to his less waspish contemporaries despite near-constant insubordination, terminations of employment from both sides, toying with the space-time continuum on personal whim, sadistic mass murder, and that one lengthy episode of being the most ruthless and implacable enemy his organization ever faced before lawyering up and chalking it all up to that yellow-skinned devil made me do it. Hal Jordan is the superhero icon for no sin ever being so unforgivable and no burnt bridge ever failing to be rebuilt so long as it comes between a straight white male citizen of the United States of America and his culturally mandated bounty of rights and privileges above and beyond those he would afford anyone not of his kind. Over 40 years later, Green Lantern still hasn't bothered much with the black skins unless you count Blackest Night, which is a statement unto itself. Will to power, manifest in the Emerald Gladiator, this Caucasian champion who can do virtually anything but chooses to do virtually nothing productive for actual human beings in favor of engaging in violent crusades against the imagination existential threats of evil alien invaders. I get enough of that through Fox News, thanks. By authority of the mystic guardians of the universe, on the far distant planet Oa, Al Jordan test pilot becomes the Green Lantern, a cosmic crusader whose magical power ring at his bidding accomplishes the impossible. In his continuing fight against interplanetary evil, Green Lantern, Guardian of the Galaxy. My name is Chad Bokelman. For five years, listeners were stuck with a mediocre show. Now we will fulfill our listeners' expectations to use the time and topics left to us and bring down those who are threatening to overtake us. To do this, we must become someone else. We must become something else. Really? What? (laughs) This is your your original attempt? (laughs) Yeah, dude. At a promo? Yeah. I think you're kind of confusing what this show's about, Chad. (sighs) All right, I got another one. I got another one. All right. Okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe your second attempt to be a little more fresh and original. <clears throat> okay, okay, all right, all right. <clears throat> I'm hoping. <Yeah. clears throat> my name is Barry Allen, and I'm the fastest man alive. When I was a child, I saw my mother killed by something impossible. My father went to prison for her murder, and what? Okay, stop, stop, stop! Time out. What? This is the Lantern cast. We're supposed to be talking about Green Lantern. Not necessarily new material because most people don't like the books these days. But the point still is, we're supposed to be talking about Green Lantern. I guess you're right, and I, I guess the old show wasn't really mediocre. I just thought it'd be funny. You did your best, Chad. That that that's what's so tragic. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell them what the show really is about? It's about Green Lantern. Oh yeah. Well, there's well there's 
the comics, there's oh, let's run down some things. We've we've done what? We've done commentaries. We've done yes. We we've done movie commentaries. We've done ring our ring cyclopedia stuff, reviewing you know props and rings and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Movie reviews. We do we do stuff like that. Too. Yeah, yeah. We've we commented uh, done running commentary on uh, on uh, issues per month. We've done random issue reviews, uh, old stuff and new. Lots of old stuff recently. Even we've even had interviews uh, both in the old iteration of the show and the new iteration of the show with me and mark so uh tons of tons of stuff here over at the lantern cast for you guys to listen to it's not just one we're not a one trick pony over here stole my line you was just gonna say that no we have a pretty broad base of topics and things that we do and we think i think we have a little bit for everybody so we certainly would appreciate everybody coming to check us out and we think you won't be disappointed yeah we you can find us at lanterncast.com we're also on uh itunes and stitcher so search for lantern cast and you can find us easily there and if they want to contact us they're more than welcome to do so mark you got that information right you always do <laughs> lanterncast at gmail.com <laughs> lanterncast at gmail.com and we even have a voicemail line guess guess what it's 708 lantern awesome and we're on facebook and twitter so find the lantern cast in whatever way suits you best but definitely give us a listen either on our website on itunes or on stitcher we're always here for you guys and i guess what closing line light the lantern <laughs> keep, keep, keep the emerald flame burning in brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Those who worship evil's might, beware my power, Green Lantern's light. They whip Green Lantern, now let him try me. Introducing an unforgettable new character who really means it when he warns, Beware my power, in Green Lantern number 87, cover dated January 1972, in a story by Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, and Dick Giordano, edited by Julie Schwartz. Somewhere in Southern California this autumn day, Green Lantern is performing his familiar, almost sacred ritual, touching his power ring to the battery from which he draws his mystic energy. Suddenly, the floor beneath his feet buckles. The air is immediately filled with dust. The walls bend and break. There is a sound like the shattering of a million huge china plates. And in that instant, the Emerald Crusader realizes a soul-chilling truth that this is an earthquake. At that moment, outside the city, designated reserve Green Lantern Guy Gardner is trying to save a little girl from the crumbling remains of an overpass. Suddenly, the screech of running girders tortures the stillness as the overpass gives, and a school bus slams into Guy Gardner. Luckily, Green Lantern Hal Jordan was there to save both the child and Gardner. But Gardner has suffered such severe injuries that he would be unable to perform his duties as alternate Green Lantern. At a nearby hospital, the surgeon warns, It's a miracle your friend survived it all. If he hadn't been in perfect health, well, as it is, he'll be bedridden for at least six months. Not a good situation. Guy is my successor, the only other deserving one on Earth, fearless and honest enough to activate a power ring. I've been counting on him, letting my duties slide while I got my personal life together. Knowing if I became strung out, Guy could take over. But now, hear me, Green Lantern of Earth. Abruptly, the Emerald Crusader's thoughts are interrupted by the telepathic image of one of the immortal guardians. We have witnessed Guy Gardner's injury. It is our wish to designate another substitute for yourself. I concur. But who? Who indeed have the guardians chosen? To find the answer, come with us to a certain urban ghetto. A police officer roused two black youths. Move along, you haven't got a game permit. And besides, you're blocking the sidewalk. Oh, let us alone. Good advice. Yeah, fine advice, officer. Maybe you ought to check your law book and find out if you really need a permit to play dominoes. As for blocking, won't hurt anybody to walk around them. You want trouble? I don't want it, but I'm not about to run from it either. And anyway, I kind of doubt you're man enough to give it, even with your nightstick. Blast them. They got no respect. Fred, respect has to be earned. The way you acted, you didn't earn a nickel's worth. 
That's the man you want to trust with a power ring, the finest weapon ever devised. He has all due qualifications, and we are not interested in your petty bigotries. Hey, that's not what I meant. Maybe he's brave, honest, and has the right kind of mind. But it's obvious he also has a chip on his shoulder the size of the Rock of Gibraltar. Frankly, I think you're making a mistake. Perhaps, nevertheless, our judgment stands. Later, in a nearby candy store, Green Lantern finishes his explanation and... So, are you interested? Considering jobs aren't exactly plentiful for black architects in the land of the free these days, I haven't worked in weeks, so time's not a problem. Sure, I'll try your gig. Might be laughs being a superhero. My mama named me John Stewart. Square John to my friends. Only from now on, maybe you better call me Black Lantern. Next, the young man begins a crash course in the mysteries of the Green Lantern Corps. Energy is broadcast by tachyon transmission from the master power battery on the planet Oa to these batteries. Your ring can only absorb 24 hours worth of the time. You must remember to charge it. Care to demonstrate? We have a ritual. An oath goes like this. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's light. Man, that's pretty corny. Except for the part that says beware my power. Mm-hmm. I dig those words. We may as well begin your field training. You'll need a proper outfit. Hal Jordan projects an exact replica of his own uniform onto John Stewart. These aren't any threads James Brown would wear, but they beat my usual Salvation Army special. Only one thing. I won't wear a mask. This black man lets it all hang out. I've got nothing to hide. For hours, they practice in the sky above the city. You have a real talent, John. You've quickly mastered the skills necessary to sustain flight. It's easy compared to the skills needed to reach my pad after dark. Those muggers. Something else. Meanwhile, racist Senator Jeremiah Clutcher was arriving via private jet to a local airport. However, a tanker truck had gone out of control. It was careening dangerously toward the plane. Hal Jordan and John Stewart rushed to save the day. Stewart takes on the tanker. And curiously, the particular construct he made with his power ring energy device punctures a hole in the oil tanker, sending a gush of thick oil upon the senator. The black-faced senator cries out, An outrage! Someone will pay! Hey, baby, haven't I seen you picking cotton someplace? John, you were stupid and irresponsible. So I maybe missed my aim with the power beam, and the senator got a little blackened. What's to worry about? I've been dark all my life, and I'm surviving. I don't believe you missed. Okay, I didn't. Listen, Whitey, that windbag wants to be president. He's a racist, and he figures on climbing the White House on the backs of my people. You think he's a racist? Tough. Nobody appointed you judge. You need a lesson. And I'm the guy who's the teacher. And as of now, I'm assigning you to guard Senator Clutcher. If anything happens to him, you've had it. And one last thing. Don't call me Whitey. Something in that reminds me a bit about he who is without sin casting the first stone. An hour later, at a stadium near the city limits, the senator speaks to a rapt audience. Understand, I have nothing against the darkies, but it's scientific fact. Their brains are smaller than normal because of their limited intelligence. They can't appreciate the finer things. He's babbling nonsense, all right. Some stupidity is the price we pay for free speech. Yes, sir. I'm getting sick to my stomach. You'll die for your lies. The listener sits stunned, shot, except for Green Lantern and his new partner. The assassin is escaping. Move, not me. You go chasing. I'm leaving. Green Lantern and Hal Jordan quickly captures the African-American gunman. Then Jordan goes looking for Jon Stewart to strip his power ring. However, in the parking lot, Hal Jordan finds out that a security guard is thanking Jon Stewart for saving his life, as another Caucasian man is held fast in a block of green energy. Thanks, fella. You saved my life. Don't thank me. Thank this ever-loving ring. Best trinket a man ever wore. Hal Jordan has the gall to walk up to Stewart and grab him by the lapel of the shirt. Jon Stewart just slaps his away explaining you're gonna have your own lesson teacher john stewart has hal jordan check the gun that he took from the presumed 
assassin, and they find that it's filled with blanks. Yeah, it's a frame. While Pistol Pete was blasting the senator with blanks, the real killing was supposed to take place in the parking lot. That way, it looks like the blacks are on a rampage, and Clutcher is everyone's hero. Then Clutcher waltzes into the presidency, and pretty soon this country is ripped apart with civil war. Clutcher, you're beneath contempt. I'm certain your colleagues in Congress will bounce you where you belong. Shortly, I'll admit it, John. Your style turned me off. I was more than ready to stick blame on you. Don't sweat it, pal. Only, style isn't important any more than color. Where and when, no one can say. But rest assured, John Green Lantern Stewart will return. On the website Interviews in Sherwood, Alan W. Wright spoke with Neil Adams about the creation of DC Comics' first black superhero. Adams had an idea for a story where there would be an alternate Green Lantern in case something happened to Hal Jordan. Julie Swartz let him know that such a person existed, Guy Gardner. Neil Adams didn't actually read the comics, so he asked to see this character. Julie had a bound collection of the issues of Green Lantern he'd published, showed it to Neil Adams. Neil suggested that we needed to hit him with a bus. It wouldn't be enough to just break his arms or legs. You have to really take him out for long term. And Julie was like, why would you want to do that? And Neil said... Well, I think we'll have another Green Lantern. And Julie asks why. Well, I'm going to tell you why. This alien comes to Earth and he's going to die. So he sends the ring out to find the bravest, most worthy guy on Earth to be the next Green Lantern. Turns out to be a test pilot. I can buy that. Test pilots have balls of steel. I would never test a plane. Never happened. So I'm buying that, okay? I'm good, okay? But now the ring is going to find somebody to replace him when something happens to him. So the ring goes out, passes by Batman, passes by Superman, all the heroes in the DC and Marvel Universe, and finds a white Anglo-Saxon gym teacher. I just find that a little incredible. I don't get it. How about we have, I don't know, a black guy or an Asian? Julie said, you start trouble. Neil continued, okay, Julie, you watch the Olympics. Okay, how often do you see three white guys up there? You usually see black guys and white guys and Asian guys. You rarely ever see three white guys. You know, maybe in shot put or archery. But you know, pretty much you get a mix. I just find it hard to think that the ring is going to go out and find another Protestant white guy. Julie suggested, well, why not an Asian? Neil came back with, you don't have such a good track record with Asians, Julie. You had a character for 10 years who's an Asian who is a friend of Hal Jordan, and you called him Pie Face. Do you understand how insulting that is? Julie didn't get it. He didn't understand why why that would be insulting. Julie finally came back with, oh, you want a black Green Lantern, don't you? And Neil basically said, yeah, you've got me. I'd like to have a black Green Lantern. And Neil was just fine with drawing him because as far as he knew, he was the only guy in comics that could draw black people. He even said, I mean, even the black artists draw white people when they draw black people because nobody lets them do it right. Or they've been trained by other people to draw everybody looking white and put a little extra color on them. I know how to draw black people. I know how to draw Asians. I know how to draw. And Neil continued, before you hand out this writing task, there's just one thing, okay? I don't want a gangbanger who's suddenly gets a superpower and turns into a good guy. I don't want an African chief that everybody can relate to, because I can't. And I don't know any black guys on the street that can relate to an African chief. I want a college graduate. I want him to have a profession. And I want him to be a good, tough guy. The assignment went out to Denny O'Neill. For the most part, it was up to Neil Adams' standards, but the character's name was Lincoln Washington. Neil Adams states, I'm reading it and I go look for Denny. And said, Denny, Lincoln Washington? Denny said, not me. It's not me. That's Julie. Julie's name. So they go to Julie's office. Julie, Lincoln Washington? What? I know lots of guys with names like that. Neil Adams had some issues with naming this guy after two white presidents and ultimately came up with the name John Stewart. Neil Adams in the interview went on to mock Warner Brothers for casting Ryan Reynolds as Hal Jordan in the major motion picture, even though general audiences all knew Green Lantern as John Stewart from the Just League cartoon. And so Adams was like, that's how Warner Brothers lost $150 million. It seems DC Comics still hasn't learned this lesson. Despite Green Lantern number 87 having an iconic cover and being a key moment in the company's history, the story has never been reprinted outside of collections of the entire 
entirety of the Green Lantern Green Arrow run. It never seems to be thought of as a singular issue worthy of any special presentation outside the scope of that particular run. Neil Adams also talked about how he had to fight for John Stewart's skin color to be as dark as it was in the comics because generally African-American characters were either very light-skinned or outright gray. And finally, Neil said, I go to conventions, I have adult black males standing in front of me and they cry because of John Stewart because they've been waiting their whole lifetime for a non-gangbanger, non-tribal chief, college-educated black man to be in comic books. They like that. Like it a lot. It was unfortunate for John Stewart's employment prospects that the Green Lantern Green Arrow title was canceled two issues later. So John Stewart would have to wait three years for his next appearance in Justice League of America number 110, cover dated April 1974. This most special adventure of the Justice League of America begins not as a call to danger, but as an errand of mercy. As the world's finest duo, Superman and Batman rendezvous to meet with Santa Simpson, a noted Santa Claus performer, for a charity event. Unfortunately, those orphans wouldn't be greeted by Santa Claus because he was killed in a sudden explosion and a note was left in the aftermath. To the Justice League of America, a Christmas gift to you from me, a very extra special key. Beneath the arch, it fits a lot that once it's turned will save a block of city folk, both mayor and bum, from being blown to kingdom come. So waste no time and don't hesitate. You have till 12 to find the gate. This key will fit, though I admit I think you'll be too late. Sign an admirer. A key indeed. Batman, but no ordinary key as your examination will show. No, this is a challenge. An invitation that will soon lead Earth's greatest heroes along a twisting terror fraught trail in pursuit of the man who murdered Santa Claus. A startling season's greeting card from Lynn Ween, writer, Dick Dillon and Dick Giordano, artists. A man has died. The gauntlet has been thrown. And, though across the world this night the air is alive with joyous tidings and holiday cheer, it is now alive with something else. The crackling electronic whisper of two Justice League emergency signal devices being put to urgent use. A supersonic impulse that circles the globe with a clearing call to battle. But though the call goes out to all, some are unable to answer. Barry Flash Allen, for example, spending the holidays with his wife Iris and her parents 1,000 years in the future. Or Ray Adam Palmer, who totally involved in the exploration of a sub-microscopic universe, has lost track of the Yuletide season on his own world. While Ralph, a elongated man Dibney, scuba diving with his wife Sue off the Caribbean coast, well out of reach of his JLA receiver, seemingly has not forgotten the season at all, nor has Aquaman, King of Atlantis, as he presides over the undersea city's sacred festival of life. Yet others who receive the emergency summons are not so distantly preoccupied. John Red Tornado Smith, enjoying a casual stroll through snow-draped Central Park with his lady friend Kathy Sutton, Oliver Green Arrow Queen, and his lady friend Dinah Black Canary Lance, interrupted in the midst of a more personal celebration. And lastly, how Green Lantern Jordan caught in the act of preparing for a Christmas Eve date never fails. Step into the tub and somebody's bound to... Whoops! The crucial JLA signal persists, and when it is not answered, there comes silent movement in the room as a self-motivated power ring bathes its owner in emerald light, ascertaining that the damage done to him is minor, and failing to rouse him, surrounds him with a healing aura, then streaks off into the night. Come with us now to a certain urban ghetto, and watch the rest of the scene run its course. So there I'm standing with these building plans I've worked months on clinched to my hand, and this pig-headed idiot says to me, Huh? John Stewart, alternate Greenlander, not space sector 2814, you are needed. Wait a minute, what if I don't want to go? Thus has the summons been sent, and the clan gathered. But as we can see by turning our attention to a satellite whirling 22,300 miles above the Earth, it is a depressingly small clan indeed. Only Black Canary, Green Arrow, Batman, Superman, and Red Tornado. But no Green Lantern, and apparently no other members were going to show. Close, brother, but no cigar. You better add Green Lantern to the roster of those present. Who? You. You may wear the uniform, friend, but you're not Green Lantern. Tell us how you got in here, or... Easy, brother. Just keep cool a second, and this little ring will tell you everything you want to know. Hal Jordan told me about this dude, Soups. Let him talk. And as the power ring explains to the JLA all that we've already seen. I've been programmed by my master, were he ever too incapacitated to answer the summons. 
to secure John Stewart and deliver him to your presence in my master's stead. The Green Lantern regularly scheduled for this time has one monumental headache, but you have me in his place. The clues lead our heroes to the famous Gateway Arch in the city of St. Louis, Missouri, where Green Lantern John Stewart uses his power ring to zap the key left in the dead Santa Claus's hands, allowing Red Tornado to fly through the city, looking for the lock that fits it. Okay then, brother. A little concentrated willpower and zap. You get that key anywhere near the correct lock, and man, you're gonna know it. Red Tornado finally locates the lock that will take the key, and calls on his fellow heroes to respond. The location is in a tenement, and before the heroes can enter the building, a group of children approach them. Season's greetings, mister. Can you spare a quarter? How about you, brother? Spare some change? Yeah, how about you, Mr. Green Lantern? You're black, too. Can you help a brother make it through Christmas? Really wish I could, little fella, but they don't put pockets in these outfits. Look, why don't I use my power ring to whip up some, huh? Uh-uh, Stuart. I don't think the Guardians allow that. If you really want to help these kids, you'll wish them a Merry Christmas, and head to that old house with the rest of us. Because if we don't find that bomb before midnight, those kids and everybody else still living in this sump hole won't be around to see Christmas. Sorry, little brothers, but the man's right. Maybe I can give you something later. Man, this place looks like the underside of a rock. Welcome to the inner cities, ladies and gents. If you think this joint is bad, you should see some of the filth holes I've had to live in. The heroes fall through a trap door and into a death trap, within which even Superman's powers are negated. However, the Man of Steel still manages to disarm the device that's threatening the lives of his fellows. Unfortunately, it appears that it costs his own life to do so. The Justice League progresses through a series of these death traps, and at least one member seems to fall to each. Black Canary, Batman, and then Green Arrow, who uses incendiary arrows to attract heat-seeking boulders. Sweet sister, that man ain't got a chance against those hungry mothers. He's sacrificed himself for us. Only Green Lantern John Stewart and Red Tornado remained, and they were soon overwhelmed by giant toy soldiers. However, they fell through another trap door in a wall. They were saved, but didn't know how or why. Meanwhile, the author of these apparent deaths, the key, gloated. He'd been defeated by the Justice League and imprisoned previously, only to learn that he was dying. He was given a compassionate parole, and decided that if he only had until Christmas to live, the best Christmas present he could give himself was making sure the Justice League died with him. Forget it, brother. The tag on that gift should say you can't open it until Christmas, and it's still a few minutes before midnight. As it turned out, not only were John Stewart and Red Tornado still alive, but so were the rest of the Justice League, thanks to the intervention of the Phantom Stranger. Unfortunately, in the midst of this revelation, the key managed to escape, throwing up a yellow force field that prevented John Stewart from capturing him. However, instants later, a mass evacuation begins as those of the Justice League, each in his unique fashion, works to clear the bewildered residents from the danger zone before the impending cataclysm can occur. And at last, only a few more seconds till the key's booby trap wipes the whole miserable neighborhood off the map. The Justice League have saved all their local residents, but I guess it's up to me to save the rest of town. And the shockwave that will result when the bomb goes... When the smoke of the eruption is cleared... Huh? Those buildings should have been destroyed by the explosion. But looking at them now, that's where they've just been built. They were, Archer. It's against the Green Lantern's code to use the power ring to give these folks new housing. But I just used it to reconstruct the old buildings the instant they were destroyed. Minus the roaches, rats, collapsing ceilings and such. These old tenements are now as clean and solid as the day they were built. I promised these kids a Christmas present, and they got it. Fantastic! Who says they don't make things like they used to? I've really got to give you a hand, Green Lantern. Green Lantern? You know that's the first time you've called me that since we've met. Yeah, well maybe you finally earned it, hero. Then, in a certain orbiting satellite, several hours after the Just League have said farewell to their substitute Green Lantern, Black Canary presented Red Tornado with his new, familiar costume from the Bronze Age, one with the terrible stripes. Maybe don't take gift coacher from Black Canary. She's not good with costumes. Red Tornado's computer analysis of the gift-giving process allows him to point out that each of the members of the Justice League were willing to give their lives for one another. Potentially the greatest gift of all that one could bestow. On this thankfully merrier Christmas than it might have appeared earlier in the evening. This one appearance secured Jon Stewart at least honorary membership in the Justice League of America. He wouldn't work with him again for another decade. The critically acclaimed but low-selling Green Lantern Green Arrow was revived in 1976, this time with artist Mike Grell. Five issues into that 
run with the May 1977 cover dated Green Lantern number 94, John Stewart also returned. The story carried over into the following month's issue, but it was really just a B plot. The main story was about Green Arrow, but to take Hal Jordan off the board, he was sick and required John Stewart to take him to Oa to get better. And that was the end of John Stewart's appearances in the 1970s. I would say at least he got drawn by Mike Grell, but the particular issue he was spotlighted in was inked by Vince Coletta. So much for that. I can't pinpoint exactly when I first became aware of John Stewart, but I know it wasn't a big deal. I found out about the diversely staffed intergalactic knights slash space cops known as the Green Lantern Corps sometime in the mid-80s. Stewart was among their legions at house ads and on the spinner rack at mall bookstores around the same time. I tended not to buy comics I could only find at the mall because I had no guarantee of getting any follow-up issues at my usual convenience store and flea market haunts. Green Lantern distribution was very spotty in Houston even before a black man took over the mantle, which didn't affect my access to Power Man and Iron Fist, but I've long suspected the DC faithful in my region at that time may have been a tad more sensitive about that change compared to the more inclusive Marvel readership. To me, this guy had the same build and costume as Hal Jordan and was having the same sorts of adventures, so it's just like they switched the heads on an action figure. It was a non-factor in my purchases, so I think the first comic I read with Stewart as a participant was Christ on Infinite Earths number 7, followed by some odd issues of the rebranded team book Green Lantern Corps and the Millennium Event miniseries. Stewart returned appearing there in my casual early 90s comics reading, but since I wasn't a particularly avid Green Lantern reader, he was just a peripheral figure. I bought Dark Source for a time because Donna Troy had joined them, so I knew that's where Stewart ended up after the Green Lantern Corps was destroyed by a mad Hal Jordan. I also occasionally picked up the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern run, where the Dark Stars got trashed and Stewart ended up in a wheelchair. Like most of the human Green Lanterns, Jon Stewart was left bumming around in bit parts and supporting roles in other people's books without his power ring. I finally started to give Jon Stewart his due consideration around 1996 or so. I got my hands on some issues from the Stevie Englehart, Joe Staten Green Lantern run contemporaneous to the Christ on Infinite Earths. Here's part of my exploration of Hal Jordan as the first Green Lantern I ever liked, but grew to hate the more I was exposed to him, and to a lesser degree Guy Gardner, the second Green Lantern I ever liked, and one I've had more ups and downs with. John Stewart was the star of the book in that time period, but his involvement was just a bonus when I started on the run. I found Stewart remarkably intelligent, even-tempered, and steady for a human member of this somewhat notably unstable lot. Further, the primary overarching story from that period, a countdown to the 200th issue, remains one of my favorite Green Lantern tales. A few years later, I managed to put together a run of the short-lived Stewart-starring Mosaic series out of a 50-cent bin at a small, remote comic shop I found while exploring a rural area outside of town. George Jones has developed an unfair reputation in comics since he was one of DC's top writers, and is at least partially due credit for launching a Green Lantern franchise of titles never seen previously and not seen again until the Jeff Johns period. That said, Jones was not motivated by fan wishes or adulation, and Mosaic was an intentionally strange and obtuse book. While inconsistent and in decline by its end, overall I feel Mosaic was one of DC's finest series of the period, and made Jon Stewart my final and longest lasting favorite Green Lantern. When Jim Starlin wrote Cosmic Odyssey, intended that in a moment of arrogance and overprotectiveness, Hal Jordan's actions would doom the heretofore unknown world of Zanshi. When editors refused them access to Hal Jordan, the previously hyper-competent Jon Stewart's reputation was allowed to be besmirched. In typical reductive fashion, Jon Stewart went from being defined as the angry black man to the one who screwed up and destroyed a planet. Never mind that Hal Jordan became a mass murderer of his own corpsemen, Kyle Rayner intentionally destroyed Oa, and Guy Gardner is often a mentally unbalanced menace to society. It was Jon Stewart who became the eternal penitent, his career defined by that one mistake, the color of his skin, and the murder of his first wife by Hal Jordan's crazy ex solely to strike at Jordan. Stewart himself was treated as less than an afterthought. Never mind that for my money, Jon Stewart starred in two of the high-water mark runs in the history of the Green Lantern Corps, one of which was canceled due to an editorial change rather than sales numbers. Stewart has never received a second chance in the decades since the first. Never mind that for a generation of young fans who far outnumber comic book readers, Jon Stewart was the Green Lantern of the beloved Cartoon Network Justice League animated series. DC would only use him in the dim later years of the JLA run, ahead of its own cancellation motivated by an expected sales bump on immediate relaunch without Stewart. Never mind that Common nearly played Jon Stewart 
forward in a Justice League live-action feature film a year before Marvel Studios launched the first Iron Man movie, but didn't because of a lost Australian tax credit. Warner Brothers would instead miscast Ryan Reynolds for the bland Iron Man wannabe bomb Green Lantern film in 2010, only for Reynolds to later hit in the more appropriate vehicle of Deadpool, plus director George Miller replaced Justice League with Mad Max Fury Road, and poor Common got stuck in a cameo as a minor gangster in Suicide Squad who was swiftly murdered by Jared Leto's Joker. John Stewart is the best example of the finest aspects of the noble Green Lantern Corps, but you wouldn't know it by how little he's employed or how poorly he's treated by DC Comics. In times when the company desperately needs viable representation amongst their iconic mantles by non-white males. But hey, DC is finally allowing their Just League merchandise to feature a heroine alongside its former hard push of four largely interchangeable Caucasian male trademarks, and maybe the proposed Green Lantern buddy picture will allow Jon Stewart to be their white lead sidekick. It's only been 40 years since Stewart's debut, 30 years since he first took over the Green Lantern book, and 15 years since he became a co-lead on the Just League cartoon. Why risk an angry tweet from President Trump proclaiming all green lives matter? Let's just keep repackaging Hal Borden, whose franchise didn't at all collapse the moment Jeff John stepped away from it, and keep rooting for the great white dope as the vanguard of the Green Lantern Corps. John Stewart is a thoughtful and meticulous intergalactic defender and architect of energy who is as courageous and capable as I expected Hal Jordan to be before I knew better. When Stewart was tapped to co-star in the Just League cartoon and aborted 2007 movie, it was certainly a nod toward diversity, but it was also an acknowledgement that he was the more dynamic and capable of the two corpsmen. From having a planet blow up on his watch when editors wouldn't allow Hal Jordan the same liability, to butchering his alien wife while he was depowered to spice up Hal's serial in Action Comics Weekly, to conveniently forgetting he was the first human guardian while canceling all the satellite Green Lantern books in anticipation of Emerald Twilight, to being crippled while his dark stars were mauled, to prop up a Kyle Rayner villain to being retconned into a traumatized, stoic jarhead that muted his multitudes. There's no obstacle they won't place in Jon Stewart's path to keep him from outshining the vanilla lantern corpsman. I'm not big on the military hard-ass take from more recent years, but Stewart is the brightest, most introspective, and progressive Green Lantern, the one who most owns the role of the guardian of the universe, which makes me love the dude. Besides making a good Wonder Woman movie, one of the easiest ways Warner Brothers could win me over after its string of lousy DCEU films would be to make the 2010 Green Lantern movie canon, only to reveal that Hal Jordan had turned into Parallax, so Jon Stewart could avenge DC's honor and his own by finally proving he's the greatest Lantern, while bringing down the worst of them. And then maybe fight Mark Strong Sinestro. We like that casting at least. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest join to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. 
Green Lantern's Light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at greenlanternslight.com. enjoy the undercurrent music used in this episode please legally download ring a ling a lario by jimmy rogers crossfire by johnny and the hurricanes robert j crawl's 2009 score for green lantern first flight james newton howard's score for the 2011 green lantern movie john gart's 1967 green lantern theme inner city blues makes me want to holler by marvin gay spanish key by miles davis and this christmas by donny hathaway Direct currents from social media include the 108th Sage, Ange, Between the Pages, Carmelo T, Cash Flag, a.k.a. Al, Chris Sheehan, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Comics in the Golden Age, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Divisive Issues, Ed Moore at Indie Comics Fan, Marvel Bronze Age, Teal Productions, and Miskatonic, Inigo Montoya, Firestorm Fan, FKA Jason Kringle, Flanger Hicks, Glenn Walker, who also gave us a follow Friday, Guy Bieber, I'm the Gun, Jeffrey Brown, Joseph Crawford, Justice's First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, Knowing Flame Comics, Kurt Fleischer, Longbox Crusade, Mannix on 34th Street, Mark Danvers, Mark Sweeney, Matches Balone, Nethead, Perturbed Renderings, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Richard Field, Ryan Daly, Silver and Gold Podcast, Slangwood Scott, Son of Cthulhu, Stella at Bad Girl to Oracle, Sinadalia Scarecrow, Trucker Talk, Waiting for Doom Podcast, Warlord World Podcast, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Yuga Khan. Martin Gray wrote, I love Adam Blake. Just as first dawn noted, Captain Common is aces. Son of Cthulhu said, My guilty pleasure of DC Space Heroes. And of the Captain Common episode's tag art, Flanger Hicks wrote, I want that trading card. Ryan Daly let us know. Good episode. And the one of the eight sage said that I really like what Bob Fisher of Giant Superman and Superman Forever Radio podcast fame calls the mid-period, the atomic age. And I'm a fan of that 50s gray area being called the atomic age too. Finally, Andrew wrote, My exposure to early Captain Comet has been pretty sparse over the years. A couple of Secret Society of Supervillains issues, a DC Comics Presents issue, a random sighting here and there, and none of those stories has ever really been strong enough to make me think there is something special about him. Even his appearances in Rebels and his new 52 reimagining and action and re-reimagining in Supergirl grabbed me either. I wonder if the best stuff for me to read is this early stuff, which at least sounds classic. This program is a not-for-profit fan production. Any copyrighted materials within are believed covered under fair use, with no infringement intended against the rights holder. You may leave your comments on the DC Bloodlines blog, the Rolled Spine podcast WordPress page, at Twitter with either Commander Blanks or Rolled Spine, or on the Facebook page. And of course, within the context of social media only, SPILL THE BLOOD!